0: Well, Amen. Friends, would you pull out your copy of scripture this morning? We're going to be in John chapter 7, verses 40 to 52. If you need a copy, we'd love to provide you one. Just raise your hand and our ushers would be happy to bring that to you. And please receive that as a gift from us to you this morning. I have a question for you to begin with. Anybody ever gotten into an argument that you've come to regret? (laughs) Anybody ever been in an argument you come to? Re- we, we argue over silly things all the time, don't we? We, we argue over, over dumb stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I, I was arguing with one of my friends. I was living in Bismarck, North Dakota at the time, and believe it or not, my friend was a Denver Broncos fan, okay? And, and I didn't like the Denver Broncos. I grew up in the eastern part of the state. I, I grew up a Vikings fan. The news flash to anybody around here. Uh, but, but I couldn't believe that somebody would cheer for, for a quarterback like John Elway or a, a barefooted kicker like Rich Carlos. It was just unfathomable to me. It was ridiculous, and I wasn't afraid to say it, but he was good at arguing, and he could rally people around him like nobody else, and, and he was convincing. I, I knew what I knew. The Vikings were clearly better, but he had all these statistics and arguments and and, and things in favor of the Broncos, silly stuff like Super Bowl victories. I, it's overrated. <laughs> And I had a hard time keeping pace, and because of his natural leadership abilities, I was often on the outside amongst our peers, and that was a big deal to me then. <laughs> that argument was really important then. But, but I look back and I ask, what was that all about? <laughs> was that worth arguing about? Was it worth risking a friendship over? <laughs> and the, the easy answer is of course not, right? Of course not, it was silly, it was, it was, it was a childish. But it begs the question, Is there anything worth dividing over? Is there anything worth arguing for? I mean, if we could just agree on the Vikings, the world would be a better place, would it not? (laughs) But seriously, friends, do do we divide over our favorite foods? (laughs) Well, no, of course not. How, How about our vacation preferences? Now, that, that'd be silly. Our, our personality types? No, generally, we understand that God has created us uniquely and individually, and so we can celebrate our, our differences in that way. But, but how about more serious things like, like politics, <laughs> workers' rights, the environment, border security? Or how about when it comes to faith? I mean, is one religion correct, or can they all be? If you believe the Bible, what doctrines are essential and what doctrines are debatable? And what does the bible teach about race and gender and sexuality friends th- there are so many potential dividing points in our culture and frankly some of them are really important but i want to suggest to you from our study in john this morning that though i'm convinced the scriptures speak with clarity on on several of these issues that the scriptures uh, that the people tend to divide over there's one primary thing that must first be considered. There's one primary thing that is more important than all of them. And what you do with this primary thing has everything to do with how you handle the rest, especially the question of who's the best NFL team. (laughs) I'm kidding. I I just press that joke for all I can get out of it, right? It comes up in all different ways. Someday I'll let it go, all right? Someday. (laughs) And so with that, we come back to John chapter 7. Remember last week, Uh, Remember the context. If you were here last week, you know this is the Feast of Booths. And according to John 7, 37 and 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out this profound statement. He says, look, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, says Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, this is a, a big deal. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, drink deeply from me in order to flow freely by my spirit. A Profound statement, a big deal. It was huge. You might remember the famous bullhorn speech by President George W. Bush in the rubble of the Twin Towers after 9-11. And someone in the crowd, when he was communicating through this bullhorn, someone in the crowd said, we can't hear you. And he turned right at this person and he responded, I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. You remember that? It still gives me chills when I see it. And of course, what Bush said in that moment triggered a cascade of U.S. foreign policy that's had major impact for decades. And though not everyone agreed with him or with that policy, what he said was a big deal. It pressed the issue, and let's be honest, it caused some division. Church, what Jesus said in the temple that day was a huge deal to all of those who heard him, and it pressed the issue. Though not everyone agreed what he said was true, they couldn't miss what he meant. And so not unlike the debate after 9-11, it makes sense that when we get to verse 40 of chapter 7, there's significant debate about Jesus. There's, There's significant debate about the personhood, the identity of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pick it up here in verse 40. This is John chapter 7. I encourage you to follow along. John writes, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Now, before we're too hard on the Jews here, we need to acknowledge something, okay? This debate proves that they care. These are people of great faith. In matters of the law, matters of faith, they're a big deal to them, and so it makes sense that the people there in Jerusalem are wrestling with what Jesus said, and, and, and the debate reveals some divergent views, And and as we observe here, at least some of them were moving in an amicable direction towards Jesus. I mean, there was something to this guy. They couldn't deny it. And in fact, some thought that he was the prophet like Moses. We've discussed this before here at Cornerstone. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses promises a prophet who would come like him in order to to work on behalf of the people. And so now that Jesus has provided bread in the wilderness, John 6, and now that he's provided water from the rock, or at least uh, hearkened to it, John 7, Some think that this guy could actually be him. This guy, this person named Jesus, could be the new Moses that Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 18. There's some positive movement here. And for others, verse 41, it's clear. They simply acknowledge nobody who does all of these signs and performs all of these wonders and who teaches like this man could be anyone other than the Christ, other than the Messiah. This has got to be him. That said, There's no indication that they're yet followers of him. They might assent to who he is, but they're not yet following him. In fact, they've got some important decisions to make about Jesus. And so I want you to look at how they're wrestling with who he is. Look at this. Verse 41, second half. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They're wrestling with his origin here. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Church, the the, the first decision to make that the people are wrestling with here is about Jesus' origin. Where does he come from? If he's from Galilee, can he really be the Christ? If a guy's from North Dakota, Minnesota, can he really be a good guy, right? Is Jesus... The Christ coming from Galilee. Because everyone knew what it says in Micah 5 too, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. <laughs> they would have known this prophecy. They would have hung their hats on this prophecy. Everyone knew that the Messiah would come from David's line, from David's city in Bethlehem. But on the surface, Jesus was coming from Galilee. He was coming from Capernaum most recently. And everyone knew that Jesus' hometown was in Nazareth. Okay? Not Bethlehem. It just didn't fit the playbill for their expectations. Now, ironically, all they would have had to do is ask, and and they would have discovered that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. But also, even more ironic, that they would have discovered that Jesus' earthly origin, his his place of birth, was far secondary to his heavenly origin. Jesus came from the Father, he came from heaven. And if they'd been paying attention, they would have known this. They would have understood this. Friends, the question of Jesus' origin is a critical question. And it makes all the difference. It's a big deal. It's what sets Christianity apart from other major world religions. The, the Mormon church, the Church of Latter-day Saints, that says that Jesus was born of a sexual relationship between God, who came to earth as a human, and Mary. It's a different faith. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God created Jesus. Islam believes that Jesus was merely a prophet of God, but certainly not God's Son. And these these propositions, this doctrine has major implications. Friends, the Bible teaches that the Son of God is wholly uncreated. He's, He's uncreated. He's always existed with the Father in Trinity. Jesus, the Son of God, is eternally begotten of the Father. He's always been with the Father. He's always been of the Father, wholly uncreated, and thus wholly equal to God, the Father in substance, in essence. And at the incarnation, when the Holy Spirit miraculously came upon the Virgin Mary, he simply took on flesh and became the God-Man who dwelt among us. Friends, this is foundational doctrine, foundational belief. The origin of Christ is a big deal. It's significant. It was to the people in the first century. They were right. Where Jesus came from was a big deal. And it should be to us as well. Unfortunately, those in the first century got it wrong, as do many today. Richard Phillips captures this. He says, they use the scriptures wrongly, appealing to the prophecy about the Messiah's coming from David in Bethlehem in order to deny Jesus. Jesus we we'll often encounter this today. Unbelief loves nothing better than to appeal to Scripture, partially read and wrongly understood, to justify its rejection of the Bible's most important message, salvation through Jesus Christ. Friends, salvation is by grace, through, in. I know it's a little warm in here. We've got to fix that sometime. Salvation is what? By, through, in. That's, that's, that's correct. That's what the Bible teaches, friends. And each of those, those major world religions I just mentioned, they, they claim the Bible as their own. They, they claim it as a part of their faith, but friends, they don't read it in the same way. And in fact, they actually change it in different parts to fit their doctrine. They select and manipulate in order to support their divergence from what the Scripture has been passed down since, since, since the beginning. They don't take it in full. And that's why it's critical that we study the whole of Scripture. That's why we let Scripture decide which topics to address. If the people of the first century were truly students of the Word, they would not have missed Christ's origin. We must not make the same mistake. Amen? Let's keep reading. Look at this, verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. (laughs) Friends, here's the deal. When when it comes to making decisions about Jesus, we need to acknowledge there's a lot of polarity in that discussion. There's There's a lot of people choosing one side or the other. There are divergent views. Some of the people wanted to believe. Others wanted to arrest. Some of the people were open to Jesus' claims. Others were insulted by them. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34. Jesus himself said this. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, there's a lot that we could wrestle with in there. But the point is, is that Jesus did come to invite people to choose. And many of us today, we're afraid to make definitive claims, especially claims about faith. And I understand that. It can be a a challenging culture to make definitive claims about what we believe. Cancel culture is real. It it is. But friends, if there's anything that demands a definitive decision, if there's anything worth dividing over, it's Jesus. Friends, Jesus divides. We see it right here played out. And you can be on the the fence about a lot of things, but at the end of the day, if if you take Jesus at his word, you can't be on the fence about Jesus He himself presses the issue. What are you going to decide? We'll come back to that. But but notice what happens next. Verse 45. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Friends, some people oppose Jesus no matter what he says, no matter what he does. And no matter how they try to couch it, their agenda ends up being immoral. It's going against the grain of Scripture. It's going against who Jesus is. We read in verse 32 that the Jewish leaders sent these officers out to catch Jesus in order to arrest him, in order to take him into their custody, because they want to kill him. John 1, 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Friends, not only did the world not receive him, but they opposed him. They tried to arrest him. They wanted to kill the Savior of the world. I can think of no more immoral agenda than that. And yet I'm convicted because Jesus died for my sin. It was my sin that caused his death. But the officers from verse 32 were, were tasked, who were tasked with this job, they just couldn't do it. And I love the reason why. Verse 46 again. Did you catch this? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like him. No one ever talked like him. No one ever said the things that he said. No one ever offered the same tone that he did. Can you imagine the way Jesus said what he said? I would have loved to hear his tone. I wish there were recordings. I'm sure there are good reasons why there weren't. No one ever talked like this guy. How can we arrest him? I love how Kent Hughes puts this. He says, What an answer. You know, they could have said, we were afraid the crowd would riot. That, that would have been a legitimate response. But the real reason was they were overwhelmed by the presence of Christ and his words. In other words, I love this. They came to arrest him, but he arrested them. Church, a lot of people make decisions about Jesus having never listened to Jesus. Jesus. A lot of people make decisions about Jesus having never listened to Jesus. Guess what? The officers listened. They were listening to this man. No one ever spoke like him, and they simply could not shake what Jesus said. And friends, it's easy to get into all kinds of debates about matters of faith with our unbelieving friends, with our family, with our neighbors. And the issues are often important, but friends, have we considered the power of simply introducing them to Jesus? (laughs) Simply opening up the scripture and saying, here, read what this guy said. Let's talk about that. I'm, I'm convicted that sometimes as a pastor, when people come to me with questions, I think, well, I've got to have the answers because I'm the guy with the title. I'm the guy with the education. But often I'm convicted and, 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 and perhaps by the Holy Spirit to say, look, just give him Jesus' words. Stop trying to tell him what to do and let Jesus do it. <laughs> Friends, are we willing to dare our friends and family to listen to Jesus' words and then to try to deny his claims, not ours? <laughs> it's a lot easier to deny what Andy says than what Jesus says, is it not? Maybe you're here this morning, you're still not sure. By the way, I'm so glad you're here. You're, you're listening, but you haven't given up what, what preconceptions you bring to this discussion about Jesus. Jesus. I want to challenge you, both today and as we continue our study in John, listen to Jesus. Take heed about what he says. Watch what he does. This is no ordinary man. No one ever spoke like he did. And the same is still true. He's, he stands in a class all his own, if you listen to him. Now, we do have to consider that though the account of these officers is compelling, it's also intermediate okay it's it's intermediate it's an intermediate step it's between something it's between these officers unbelief and between their full commitment their belief in Jesus it's intermediate they've recognized Jesus uniqueness but they haven't yet fully subscribed they're they're on the way but they're not there yet and it's the intention of the Jewish leadership to keep that from happening And see, notice how they respond to the officers, verse 47. It says, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of the authorities believed in him? Have any of the Pharisees believed in him? What are you doing? Friends, it's no small irony that the God of the universe is standing right there in front of them. He's just taught this amazing thing. And all these guys can do is worry about who has the greatest authority. No small irony. And here's the deal. Many in our day claim authority. Be they scientists or politicians or, or religious leaders, including Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and even Christians sometimes. But there's only one who speaks like Jesus. Jesus is the legitimate authority. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is contrasted with the authority of these Jewish leaders. His authority is legitimate. Their authority was illegitimate and not only that not not only did the Jewish leaders have an immoral agenda with with an intermediate account and an illegitimate authority they also had a supremely condescending attitude they had a supremely condescending attitude look at verse 49 it says again this is still in the words of these Jewish leaders but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed it's strong language How could this crowd possibly know anything? How could they decide who is the prophet and who isn't? What qualifies them to decide who is the Christ, the Messiah? And see, the Jewish leadership, they they viewed the crowd as as an uneducated rabble. They don't know the law. How could they? They don't have the faculty to, to, to interpret the law. The people, according to Jewish leadership, were clearly operating outside their pay grade. And friends, we know this happens in our day sometimes. There are traditions that claim that the people of God must not read the word of God without a priest to interpret it. But friends, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be elite to understand Jesus. You don't have to have gone to the same seminary that I have. You don't have to even go to seminary. Praise God, right? Friends, Jesus has made himself known. You can understand him. You can hear him. You can respond to him. You can believe in him, not just because I say you should, but because what he says is compelling. It's true. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, praise God, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Can you imagine trying to boast in the presence of God? <laughs> Richard Phillips says there's nothing wrong with refinement, education and intellect. But when mixed with contemptuous pride, they make a deadly poison. It never occurred to these leaders that the rabble might be right, and they might be wrong. But how often this has been the case when it comes to Jesus? <laughs> Cultural superiority is generally an obstacle to the humility required by faith. (laughs) Friends, it's not that there isn't a place for those uniquely called to teach the word of God. It's not that there isn't a place for those who are called to study the word of God such that they might bring it to a, a congregation. I'm convinced there is. I'm convinced that's biblical. But when the teacher claims absolute and unquestionable authority, we end up in some pretty dark places. There was darkness hovering over the religious elite of the first century. Their their agenda was immoral. Their account was incomplete. Their authority was illegitimate. And their attitude was condescending. And so when it came to Jesus, tragically, they divided from Jesus. They chose the wrong side. And yet, praise God, not everybody. Look at this, verse 50. It says, Nicodemus Who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Remember Nicodemus? Remember when we first met Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He comes to Jesus by cover of night. He's he's intrigued by this man, but he's also uh, afraid of the religious establishment. So he comes just by himself into this dark corner of the temple grounds, and he has this conversation with Jesus, and he asks Jesus honest questions, and guess what? He gets an honest answer. And there's no indication at that time that he put his faith in Christ. I'm convinced he wasn't yet born again, even though Jesus explained to him the way the kingdom. But it's also clear here that that four chapters later, the impression Jesus made on him is lingering. It's powerful. He can't let it go, and so here's Nicodemus, unwilling to let his compatriots get away with dishonesty towards Jesus. He calls him out. He says, "Look, your account of this man is illegitimate at worst. It's intermediate at best. You haven't given him a fair hearing, and and our law requires that you do. You who claim authority to interpret the law must not break the law." In order to carry out your own immoral agenda and friends just look at the difference Jesus makes something happened when Nicodemus met Jesus that night many months ago and because of that he's now willing to risk publicly his reputation by defending Jesus he's moving closer to Jesus and friends here's the principle you cannot spend time with Jesus and come out unscathed (laughs) I warn you if you're a skeptic, if you're saying, no, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, don't, don't listen to his words if you're not willing to be changed. Now I implore you on the opposite. Do listen to his words because how he'll change you will rock your world and you won't go back. You'll be so glad he did. Again, Richard Phillips says, Nicodemus had done what no one else in this entire account did, Nicodemus is the protagonist here he had gone to Jesus even if secretly at night and he did the right thing with his ignorance he came to Jesus to seek truth from his word praise God you don't have to have everything figured out but here's what you do have to figure out who do you go to when you need to know you go to Jesus He did the right thing with his ignorance. He came to Jesus to seek truth from his word. Therefore, alone in that assembly, he had valid personal experience of Jesus. And as a result, his conscience alone was warm and living. (laughs) I love that way of describing a conscience it was warm, it was living, it was alive to the things of God. Church, have you rejected Jesus without talking to Jesus? Give him a chance. Nicodemus would eventually be the one to care for Jesus dead body and place him in a tomb I'm convinced that Nicodemus became a believer in Jesus Christ I'm convinced we'll get to talk to Nicodemus someday in eternity for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ And I'm convinced that if if you who do not yet believe could talk to Nicodemus today, he would tell you, just go to him, just talk to him, just listen to him. It doesn't matter what hour, it doesn't matter how or when, just open yourself up to what he has to say and then wait. And if you don't understand, wait some more and keep talking to him and keep listening to him and let him do his things, thing. Just don't close the door on him. He changed my life. He can change yours too. And friends, I know some of you have been praying for a loved one to come to know Jesus for a long time. You're praying for that loved one to turn in faith to Christ. If you are, be encouraged. It took a while for Nicodemus. He didn't just show up and Jesus gave him the four spiritual laws and and all of a sudden Nicodemus turned and changed. It took a while. Nicodemus had an encounter with Jesus. Nicodemus observed what was going on with Jesus. No doubt, Nicodemus was a student of Jesus' teaching as much as he could with what he had available to him there in Jerusalem. But it took him a while. You have permission to be in process, friends. Not because I say so, but because the scriptures demonstrate. Keep moving. Keep listening. And if your friend is moving and listening, keep talking, keep talking. Keep sharing, keep loving. Nicodemus listened over a long period of time and that made all the difference. So, so what? What do we do with this? Well, friends, when it comes to Jesus, eventually there does come a point of decision. There comes a point of decision. Will, will we go the way of the world and, and, and say that who Jesus is doesn't really matter? Will we go the way of the world and say that all roads lead to heaven? Or will we come to Jesus on his terms? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. To no one else, not to Muhammad or to Joseph Smith or to Buddha or anyone else. And friends, I I risk being offensive there. I risk it because I want to be clear. I know people of those faiths and I, I love them and respect them, but they're not the same. They're not the same faith. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way, friends. He's the only way. And it's both unkind and unloving to say anything else, to represent anything else. <laughs> Thus, John seven forty three makes sense. So there was a division among the people over him. Friends, listen to Jesus' words. There there comes a time to divide when that time is over the person, the identity of Jesus Christ. We must divide over Christ. He's the deal breaker. If you don't affirm that Jesus is the way to the Father, that Jesus has exclusive authority to forgive sin by his shed blood and resurrection, then sadly, we're not in the same camp. Sadly, tragically, we, we divide over this. It doesn't mean that we can't be friends It doesn't mean that you can't be in process. Trust me on this. It doesn't mean that you can't come to church and listen and wrestle and ask honest questions. You don't even have to do it by cover of night. Just give me a call. Or any one of our other pastors or directors. Or frankly, your your growth group leader or your friend who you know is walking with Jesus. Give them a call and ask them about it. You have permission to be in process around here. But ultimately we recognize there is nothing more important than deciding who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And and if you don't affirm that Jesus is the Son of God who paid the price for your sin and mind and who demands faith in him and in him alone, we're not on the same page. And we must recognize that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now let's say you are convinced. And I know many of you are. Let's say that you've agreed that who Jesus says he is is actually true. Then what? What do you do? What's the application for you this morning? Again, verse 37, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friend, if you're convinced that who Jesus says he is is actually true, then you drink from him. You drink from Jesus. You submit your life to him. You acknowledge your need for salvation that he offers. You repent of your sin. You agree that this life that you've been living, this life that you know is contrary to the word of God, this life that you know is not according to God's will. You say, God, I'm sorry. I agree. I acknowledge. And I want to go the other direction. Help me. You repent of your sin. And then you say to God, God, I know that without the blood of Christ, without what Jesus accomplished, I am lost forever. And there is no hope for me apart from what Jesus did for me. And so I invite you to be my Lord and Savior. I invite you to forgive me of my sin. And I invite you to be the Lord of my life that I might walk with you all my days. You drink deeply, friend. Once you acknowledge who Jesus is, you accept what he offers. Some of you say, you know what, I did that a long time ago. If that's you, guess what? The well is deep. Keep drinking. Keep drinking. Not to secure your salvation. That's already been taken care of. But keep drinking, keep spending time with him, keep reading his word, keep praying, keep hanging out with other believers who help you know him better. Keep drinking, not for salvation, but for sustenance. The theological word is sanctification. Keep drinking such that the identity and the person of Jesus Christ takes more and more root in your life, that you reflect his image more and more fully. Friends, Jesus is the life giver. He's the life sustainer. Jesus makes all the difference. And then finally, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, don't just drink deeply and divide and keep to yourself. It's not the way it works. When it comes to Jesus, we must divide over the identity of Christ, but we dare not keep a distance. Instead, we must display Christ to the world around us. We do that in all kinds of ways. We're called to be salt and light. We speak the truth. We act the truth. We preach the gospel in its fullest form as best we know how. But then friends, we live that same gospel in love in front of not only the world, not only in public, but also in our neighborhoods, in our friendships, in our offices, in our workplaces. We represent Jesus to those around us. Church, we do what Jesus did. We speak to people who diverge from us with dignity, we affirm their value as those created in the image of God. And we recognize that without Christ, they're lost. And so we offer grace. Jesus came to die for those who've distanced themselves from him by their sin. But he quickly and willingly covers the gap for those who repent and believe. Sure, we divide over Jesus. But we don't distance. Instead, we display who he is, what he's done we offer his love and grace. My question for you this morning, to whom are you displaying the love of Jesus to today? Who are you praying for? Who are you listening to, trying to understand such that you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them? Friends, we're called to make disciples who make disciples. We do, yes, we do divide over Jesus, but then we display. Let's display brightly today, amen? Let's pray. Lord, may this be true of of us. May we be a people willing to stand on the objective reality that you, Jesus, are the Son of God. You are the Holy One. You are the new Moses. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. Come to deliver us from darkness. And without you, we cannot stand. But with you, we have everything we need for life and godliness, both now and in the future. And Lord, in this world of polarization and division, may we not divide over silly things, over unnecessary things, but may we stand firmly and strongly on your word. And may we rest and even defend at times the truth of your word, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the sufficient one who came to shed his blood, who came to rise again, and who did, and who now offers eternal life to all who will believe. Lord, if there's anybody here today that has yet to put their faith in you, I pray that they would turn. And even right now, that they would simply acknowledge their sin, that they would repent and ask for your forgiveness, And, Lord, they know what it is, and you know what it is, and that's enough. May may they simply breathe that out to you in whatever words you give them. Lord, I'm sorry for this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want you to forgive me, and I, I want to live according to what you have provided. I want to receive that free gift of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ, and I want to live for you. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we display what you've done in us. God, we are not a a people who have everything together. God, we are not a people who have, have been made perfect, but we press on toward love and godliness, and we do hold a great treasure, albeit in jars of clay. May that treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of you, Jesus, shine brightly through us, and it's in your name we pray, amen.